Hi, and welcome to Mumspire, your go-to place for inspiration, information, and great tips on how you can become a happier and healthier mum. My name is Anna Maria, and I'm your host. I work as a naturopath, nutritionist, herbalist, doula, and yoga instructor. But most importantly, I'm a fellow mum. Okay, let's get up and close with sleep, particularly infant and baby sleep. I know so very well how sleep deprivation and getting up for the seventh time in the middle of the night to comfort a baby who is calling out for more TLC and still seem to be needing more milk despite having just fed 40 minutes ago can drive the most Sen Mama totally bonkers. I find myself reading a lot about sleep, wanting to really know as much about the science and the truth of real sleep. Because the fact is, everyone seemed to have heard some version of, well, my baby slept through the night from day one, or no, no, my baby still wakes several times and is two years old. And we end up comparing our baby's sleep needs to the latest news in the mother's group or the playground gossip. And it can be really heartbreaking for mothers who think they're the only one who has a baby that won't sleep. Because the truth is, we're already in some version of sleep deprivation, particularly when we have a baby who's under six or 12 months. So it can look really bleak if we don't know how to fix this non-sleeping baby issue. So I have armed myself with some expert advice. I've managed to track down a sleep doctor. Yep, that's right. A doctor who has all the sleep science knowledge about infant and baby sleeping. And he's on the podcast with us today. How great is that? So let me introduce to you Dr. Sujay Kansagra. Sujay is the director of Duke's Pediatric Neurology Sleep Medicine Program and assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Neurology. He is the author of multiple books, including My Child Won't Sleep, a guidebook for behavioral insomnia. His research interests including pediatric narcolepsy and sleep apnea. So you see, he's dealing with some of the real serious cases of sleep problems. So I thought he had to be the best person to drill into the truth about sleep with. And as a cherry on the cake, it turns out he's a lovely guy. He's down to earth and very realistic about the individual needs of families and really empathetic about the difficulties some have about sleep training as opposed to, let's say, co-sleeping. He's a father of two children and has trialed and tested his own advice on his kids. I think that deserves a bit of merit. And he still swears by his methods. But here's the best news. He's not here to suggest that there is just one way, and that is to leave your sweet little bubba to cry in the dark. No, as a matter of fact, he believes there are several ways us parents can approach sleep training. And that, I think, is super great. Because, as you will shortly hear, babies are all different. Some are harder to get to self-soothe than others. And that's where Dr. Sujay's different approaches comes into play. And although I'm personally leaning slightly more towards co-sleeping... I have so far had my own two children show me just how different their sleep needs are. One mastered the self-soothing from the very early months of life and has been an absolute dream sleeper ever since. And the other one, well, not so much. She's a real social butterfly when it comes to sleeping and needs to be soothed a lot. I now have my third baby and she's still too little to be any trouble at all. She's still in her infant stage and sleeps as it pleases which is a lot of the time, which is wonderful and long may it last. (laughs) Anyways, 
What I found was interesting was that Sujay has a similar situation with his two children. One was fairly good at self-settling and the other one needed more help. So there you go. It's very individual. And I think that's important to remember. All right, let's get to it, shall we? I think that regardless of your beliefs of crying it out or sleep training or co-sleeping, whatever side you're leaning more towards, the information that Dr. Sujay has is worth gold. He has such knowledge that is important to be shared because if we understand how sleep works, then we can get a bit more realistic about what's possible and what isn't. All right, I won't keep you any longer. Enjoy. So today on the call, I have Dr. Sujay Kansagra. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I tell you the the subject of infant sleep and baby sleep is such a big one. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> I clinic quite frequently. <laughs> I'm sure you do. So Sujay, before we dive into all the juicy stuff around sleep and babies, I would love to just hear a little bit more about you and your work. Sure. Well, I'm a pediatric neurologist by training, and I am the uh, assistant director of the Pediatric Neurology Sleep Medicine Program at Duke University. And my clinic tends to be filled with both pediatric neurology cases as well as sleep disorders cases. And the types of issues that we see are often insomnia, sleep apnea, parasomnias like sleepwalking and night terrors, restless leg syndrome, narcolepsy. So it runs the gamut when it comes to sleep problems. We also do research in a variety of different issues, including sleep apnea and narcolepsy. You're also a dad. You have two children. Is that correct? I do. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. All right. So you know exactly what the sleep troubles that parents go through. Yes, I am sympathetic with the struggle. Absolutely. But they're good sleepers, I read. They are fantastic sleepers. It took some sleep training, but they are both fantastic sleepers. Wonderful. I can't wait to ask you more questions about that. <laughs> You also have a book that's called My Child Won't Sleep. That's correct. And that goes into the details of the different types of sleep methods and therapies. That's right. It addresses behavioral insomnia for infants, toddlers, and then delves into um, different types of insomnia and circadian rhythm problems for adolescents. So it really is a book that covers infancy all the way through early adolescence and into adulthood. And the goal was to offer families solutions that are scientifically based uh, and offer families options because oftentimes we see articles that say this is the method to choose when in actuality there are multiple methods to choose from that have scientific merit. So that was the goal of the book. Amazing. So there isn't just one way. Is that what you're saying straight off the bat? That's right. There are multiple ways. Wonderful. I like to hear that. <laughs> so obviously for parents, sleep is probably the biggest subject of them all, isn't it, when it comes to parenting, because we're so affected by, you know, the change of sleep rhythm once we have, you know, our little infant in our hands. We, you know, as soon as sleep goes out the window, everything feels very different and a lot harder. That's so true. Yeah. So everyone seems to be this, you know, how do I get back into my normal sleep rhythm? That's all we want. <laughs> <laughs> so the challenge is real. What I was thinking was, we can't really talk about sleep without talking about the circadian rhythm. Would you agree? Absolutely. So I would love for you to explain to us and the listeners what that means. Sure. Let me start off by telling you there are two main 
processes that modulate how we feel throughout the day regarding wake and sleep. One is called the homeostatic sleep drive. The homeostatic sleep drive, simply put, the longer we're awake, the sleepier we feel because there are a variety of metabolites that build up in our brains the longer we're awake and signal our brains to say, hey, you should be getting sleepy. It's time to get some rest. So that's one process. And the second process is the circadian rhythm. The circadian rhythm is a system that's possessed by just about every living animal, even plants, fungi, everything that's living on our planet has some semblance of an internal body clock known as a circadian rhythm. And for humans, one of the things that it does is it modulates an alerting signal, making us feel awake during certain times of the day and sleepy at other parts of the day. And it fluctuates in a 24-hour pattern. That 24-hour pattern essentially plays in a loop in the background all the time making you feel sleepy, hopefully at nighttime, and making you feel awake in the morning and later on in the evening. It takes that all-too-familiar dip for us adults, typically between noon and 3 o'clock, but then revs back up and makes us feel pretty awake as the afternoon and evening come on, only to become much less alerting as night hits. And thankfully, when we fall asleep, our circadian rhythm tends to go down low and stay low as the night continues. For infants, the circadian rhythm, it takes some time to develop because a lot of it is modulated by our melatonin secretion. And so infants don't really have much of a day-night cycle, typically for the first six weeks of life. And after that, they start to develop their own natural circadian rhythm system with melatonin secretion that more closely mimics parents' circadian rhythms. When we refer to it in sort of a layman's terms, when we say our body clock, that is essentially the circadian rhythm. Is that correct? That's correct. And so infants don't really have this body clock, which we can most certainly feel. And so is it a learn, like, do we have to give them that by exposing them to light and so on? Is that how we give it to them or would it happen naturally, even if we lived in a dark cave? Yeah. So it really is light that ends up setting the timing of your circadian rhythm. You would develop a natural up and down rhythm, but it may not actually correlate to the day and night cycle unless you're actually exposed to light at the appropriate times. And light from the sun tends to be the strongest driver of the circadian rhythm just because it's the brightest light that you could typically find. And that's what babies need to help them develop that. Now, there is some data that shows that melatonin can also be passed through breast milk. And so babies that are breastfed may also develop some semblance of a circadian rhythm based on mother's melatonin that's passed through breast milk. You know, sometimes it can be so individual when we have our newborn. So in that, you know, within the first six weeks, you might have babies that sleep a lot during the day and very little during the night. And some babies sleep lots during the night and very little during the day. And is that just absolutely random? Yes, it can be quite random. And it really is just part of of a baby learning over time to sleep at night and wake during the day. But in those first six weeks, there really may not be much of a system at all. There may not be much of a day-night change. It's just a period of sleep and awake that can occur in a random fashion. So it can definitely be a challenging first six weeks. (laughs) I think it just is, isn't it? So after the six weeks, Mark, roughly, we would then start to expect or hopefully expect that we can get our children into somewhat of a circadian rhythm or a body clock rhythm that is similar to what we're already having as adults. That's right. So the goal by six weeks is that the child is sleeping the majority of their sleep during the nighttime and spending large chunks of their wake time during the day. Okay. And do you have techniques for this? Would you say that a mom or a dad should start to 
keep this in mind at the six week mark. And just so, okay, make sure that you have a routine in place where you maybe get up and you go outside early in the morning and you wind down. Should that really start to kick in then at around six weeks? No, well, I say, you know, every child is different and some children may all develop that day night pattern much earlier, but I usually use it as a way to reassure parents and say that even up to six weeks, if you're having lots of difficulty and the child is awake a lot at night, sleepy a lot during the day, that's not unusual. There's nothing that's necessarily wrong with your with your child. It's just going to take time for that sleep-wake pattern to develop. When it comes to, to helping the child develop a routine, the circadian rhythm should develop naturally just based on light and dark exposure that occurs really regardless of what you do. And I tell parents they should be trying to buy the same sleep principles that we tell children, such as avoiding too much light exposure at nighttime via screens, via bright lights in the room. And that naturally will also help children because they won't be exposed to that same light because they're naturally going to be around parents. So sticking to your own routines is, is great as best as you can with a child around. But I tell folks it's not necessary to go out of your way with a young infant to help them establish their routines because it should occur naturally when it comes to the circadian rhythm. And so I guess this is something a lot of women can be guilty of is when we're either breastfeeding or bottle feeding, depending on what their family is doing, checking Facebook and Twitter emails while we're doing that with our infant. Does that actually affect our baby then? Well, the good thing about devices is if they're not pointed directly at you and you're just around the devices, you're really not getting that much bright light. And it's typically the, the brightness of light and the color of light that's associated with changes in the circadian rhythm. So the brighter the light you have, the more likely you are to inhibit the body's own natural melatonin secretion. And LED light is heavy in blue light, and blue light tends to also be inhibiting of melatonin. So if the baby is breastfeeding, it's late at nighttime, and there's a, there's a bright phone and it's shining directly on the child's face, yes, I would definitely recommend staying away from that. But if it's more just for mom and she's keeping away from the child, it's not directly shining at the child, likely it's not going to impact the circadian rhythm all that much. However, what I would say is that for parents and for their own well-being, I usually recommend good sleep principles, which means trying to avoid bright light exposure at nighttime. Because one, they're already going to be sleep deprived. And two, if they have poor sleep hygiene, they're going to really feel the effects of sleep deprivation the next day. And that affects how we parent. I think a sleep deprived parent, it's really harder to be there for your child and um, to be engaged with your child, the more fatigued and tired you are. Yeah. Oh my God. It changes everything when we're so tired and haven't had any sleep. Yes. And then we get into that bad habit of entertaining ourselves while we're breastfeeding and checking Facebook, for example. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I always say it's also important to maintain sanity. And so if that's an escape yeah. and that's you know a way that you enjoy, it's always that balance, right? So it's not a definite no, but you have to find that balance that works best for you. Yeah, yeah. Just don't shine it straight at your child, I guess. That's, that's right. very, very good advice. <laughs> your baby does not need Facebook. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. So the million dollar question, of course, is when should a child, a baby, be able to sleep through the night? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's no great answer here either, unfortunately. Children, of course, depending on whether they're born premature, whether they have other medical needs, whether they are frequent feeders at nighttime, all of that can impact when they're ready to sleep through the night. But the typical time where sleep training is done to help a child self-soothe and be able to sleep for larger portions at night typically happens around six months of age. That's when most sleep experts would say it's safe to try to sleep train a child. And it's usually at that age, so long as they've gained weight, they're well past their birth weight, they're, they're gaining weight at a, at a good pace and well on the normal curves, 
a child physiologically should be able to make it through the night without needing extra calories or feeds at nighttime. But there are children, if they are used to consuming large amounts of milk or food at night, they will naturally get hungry at night. So part of sleep training is also understanding that it may be hard to go from multiple feedings to no feedings. And so part of it is also weaning children off of calories at night, even before you start to truly sleep train them. Mm. So with the six months mark, you know, they've started solids. They hopefully are a lot, you know, they have a lot more calories in their bodies throughout the day and so on. But we then also need to keep in mind that if we have until that six months mark, let's say, given our babies maybe three, four, five feeds during the night, then it's not enough for them to just feel full enough and go back to bed. Yeah, it may be a lot more challenging just because they will naturally have those cues of hunger that occur in the middle of the night because their bodies are used to getting calories at nighttime. Another question I have is, sometimes there's this theory that the better a child sleeps during the day, so if they have you know long sustained naps during the day, they sleep better at night. Is there a reason for this or is it something that you even recommend? Like if a child is a napper, like they only have 20 or 40 minutes daytime naps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that observation is due to the fact that if a child doesn't sleep well or doesn't get the adequate amount of sleep, they sometimes become more irritable and more cranky and have a harder time soothing themselves and getting to sleep at night. And so the fact that they sleep well and nap well during the day means that they're likely well rested. They're not going to be excessively irritable. So when it is time for them to sleep, it may be an easier transition to sleep. It's not that, you know, people often say sleep begets sleep, and that's part of it. It's because they are not going to be prone to that irritability and excessive fatigue that may actually prevent them from falling asleep. But your sleep need is essentially set. And for young infants, it's somewhere between 12 and 18 hours per day. And just because you're sleeping a lot during the day, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to still have excessive amounts of sleep at night. It's really based on what your sleep need is. So if your sleep need is 16 hours and you sleep four hours during the daytime, chances are you're going to sleep 12 hours at night, not more than that, just because you slept well during the day. But that transition to sleep may be easier because you're better rested. Yeah, okay. So it's not necessarily just a good day sleeper is also a good night sleeper. There is really just a certain amount of hours that the baby needs in That's reality. Right. Yeah, okay, great. I think Now, okay, so... You've mentioned the term sleep training, <laughs> and mm-hmm. there is all these different philosophies around how we should be dealing with our uh, children or our baby's sleep in that, especially in that first year. I guess is where we're talking, or in the first six months. And so there is the idea of control crying or sleep training or cried out methods, and then there is the co-sleeping method. So the two very different, I think, polar opposites. I would say in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we have to talk about that because that is the question I get all the time and the conversation I hear going around all the time. What is right and wrong? What is your philosophy on this? Do you have a preferred method? Yeah. So my preferred method for sleep training is whatever works best for the family. And you're right. It's a hotly debated topic. There are lots of myths and Um, things that may not be necessarily true that oftentimes families hear that may dissuade them from sleep training their children. When it comes to my, you know, my preference, so co-sleeping in infancy for sleep physicians is a no-no. And and the reason for that is is really for safety. There's great data that shows that there's a, a higher risk having a serious problem that occurs at night with the health of the child with co-sleeping. It's, it's unsafe to be next to large humans when you're a young infant. 
from trying trying to sleep. So really, it's a safety issue. You know, there's increased risk of sudden infant death syndrome when it comes to co-sleeping. So it's a, it's a safety issue, not necessarily a, a sleep continuity issue. Now, people that are breastfeeding and nursing their children breastfeeding will say, well, it is more convenient for me to have the child right next to me to, to breastfeed. And I'm a firm advocate of breastfeeding. I think that's very important. But I'm also a firm believer that you know, we have to keep children safe at night. So having their own sleeping surface. The American Academy of Pediatrics has great guidelines as far as the best surfaces and the best scenario for a child's safe sleep. And I'm, I'm a believer in that, that, letting them have their own sleep surface. Now, if that sleep surface is right next to the, the parent's bed, that's fine. But as long as they have their own safe sleep surface, that's very important. So like a co-sleeping bed as such. So it's an attachment to the bed. Yeah. That's your preference. But a separate surface where a, a parent, for example, who's extremely sleep deprived does not run the risk of rolling you know, close to the child or, or potentially you know, smothering the child due to loose clothing, et cetera. And so in regards to the other version, which is um, you know, cried out or sleep training, where we allow the child to cry and self-settle, essentially. The, you know, the alarming theory about that is that the brain, the little baby's brain gets flooded with cortisol and that can be long-term damaging. Would you mind speaking on that? Sure. Well, I think a lot of this comes from, uh, there was a study done in, in Texas, I believe it was in 2012, 2011, where they brought infants into the hospital and they checked salivary cortisol levels in both the mother and the child over the course of a five-day period. These were infants ranging from, I believe, four months to 10 months. And they found that mother's cortisol levels over time went down, but the infant's cortisol levels remained the same. And they took that to mean, well, you know, the child is stressed, but perhaps not showing signs of stress by outwardly reacting. The difficulty with that study is that anytime we want to make, draw a conclusion, we always like to have a control group, a group that doesn't go through the, the same scenario to see whether cortisol truly is affected by sleep training. And for that particular study, there was no control group. So it's an interesting it's an interesting result, certainly, but it does not necessarily prove that sleep training leads to increase in cortisol levels. It would be very important to have a control group that didn't go through sleep training, that was also brought into the hospital, that also had salivary melatonin levels checked. Because just being in a new environment certainly can cause elevation of cortisol in infants. They're not in the home anymore. They're in a sleep environment. So I think a lot of that data is sometimes misconstrued and, and people think that these children are, are flooded with cortisol and that's long-term damaging. There, there are actually studies, um, a lot of studies actually from Australia, that show that sleep training, different methods of sleep training, do have short-term advantages for the child and for the caregiver. There's data that shows that it helps with sleep continuity for children and that it helps with maternal mood. But there are actually no studies showing long-term benefit between sleep training and not sleep training. And so I tell parents, this is an option for you based on the science. It shows that it can be beneficial short-term. If you choose not to for personal reasons, that's okay too. But I, I always try to dispel the myths around cortisol and, and trauma to children because the data does not support that. When it comes to behavior and long-term outcomes, it shows that children actually do relatively the same based on the data that we have right now. It's the short-term benefits that are, that are good for the sleep training group. I think it's so important to hear exactly what you just said. So thank you, because 
when we hear that our baby's brains are flooded with cortisol and it can have long-term detrimental effects on how they manage stress throughout their life, I mean, that's enough to put anyone off, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and that's why this is, this is so difficult because, you know, when people see that data and they hear, oh, cortisol is a stress hormone, they automatically think, oh my God, I, I shouldn't be doing this. Cortisol is important for our bodies. If you didn't have cortisol, you would not survive. <laughs> so cortisol is important and people think of it as it equates to stress. Well, there can be lots of reasons for cortisol changes. We know that cortisol is actually secreted in a circadian fashion. So your circadian rhythm actually dictates the ups and downs of your cortisol levels throughout the day. And so I think cortisol gets a bad rap, unfortunately. They hear cortisol and automatically alarm bells go off. And that really shouldn't be the case. And certainly the, the more of the studies that have been done in a more truly experimental fashion with control groups show that long-term, actually, cortisol levels are also not changed in children that undergo sleep training. When it comes to behavioral outcomes and bond, there are actually some studies that show the bond between parent and child improves after sleep training, likely because everybody is more rested and it's easier to be a, um, a more attentive parent, I think, when everybody is well-rested. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the myths that surround sleep training and dissuade parents from doing it unfortunately revolve around facts that aren't necessarily truly accurate facts. Yeah. And I think often what I recommend is that, you know, there are different ways to do this, as you say as well. There isn't just one right way for all families, mm -hmm. but you have to check in and see the state of the parents, the state of the mom. I mean, if we're in, you know, in a heap on the floor because we're so exhausted, it's obviously not working because that's not going to help the infant or the child. Yeah. And the main thing that I emphasize to parents is that sleep training is not something you're doing to your child. It's something you do for your child because a child that has to wake up multiple times and cry to get put back to sleep, it's also not nice for the child, you know? And, uh, and of course, you know, it's a, a parent's always there to help them. Um, but having to wake up, cry to get soothed back to sleep is also, you know, not, not a comfortable thing. And I equate that to saying, well, you know, if you fall asleep in your bed in, in, the, in this environment that you're used to, and then you wake up uh, in the middle of your kitchen floor because somebody moves you there in the middle of the night, you're not going to be happy. And similarly, when it comes to infants, they oftentimes rely on certain things in their environment. They get used to certain things in their environment. So if they go to sleep with certain element put in place, such as being rocked or being soothed, they come to expect that every time they wake up at night. And so when they wake up and they're not being held or rocked and they're in a different environment than when they fall asleep, they're not going to be happy about that. So sleep training is essentially teaching a child that they can go to sleep on their own in the same environment that they're going to wake up in in the middle of the night. Because the key here is that all children wake up. Every human being wakes up in the middle of the night. It's a normal part of sleep. It's not the awakening that's the problem ability to fall back asleep and self-soothe. And that's what we're really teaching children, the skill of being able to self-soothe and go back to sleep. Mm, okay. I know you have to uh, go and attend to your children, which I want to respect, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to ask you, so when it comes to that, because I know everyone will be asking me, so what is the right way? And we now have mm -hmm. all this wonderful information that you've given us. And I think it clarifies a lot to an extent that it's not all bad if you do one or the other way. Mm -hmm. And there is openness to do whatever way feels better for you as a family and as, you know, whatever resonates better. But when we're talking sleep training as such, what have you done with your children? Am I allowed to ask that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very important question. You know, there, there are, are four main ways that are scientifically proven that are beneficial and have a positive effect when it comes to sleep continuity. So sleep, four main ways of sleep training. And, and I detail each one step by step in the book. It'd be a lot to go over every single one, but let me give, kind of give you the sense of, of the range, which is 
on one side, which is the complete cry it out method or the extinction method, which is where you do your nighttime routine, you feed the child, you make sure the child is comfortable, you put them in their sleep place, which is the crib or the bassinet, and then you essentially wait and let them cry it out without really any intervening checks. Now, this is a method, a true, pure cry it out, which has lost favor over time just because it it leaves families without the ability to you know, intervene and try to self-soothe and things don't feel, feel comfortable when they've gotten to a point where you're like, well, you want to do something to help your child. This method works. It's effective. It's a method that was popularized by Dr. Weisbluth, and the studies show that it's safe. But it's the kind of the extreme version of cry it out, which most families, I don't recommend families do that just because it's oftentimes uncomfortable for families to do. And so the next kind of method is a Ferber method or the graduated extinction method where you allow the child to cry or fuss for short time intervals and increasing time intervals, yet you're able to go back in and check on the child to make sure that they're okay, that they're comfortable, and that they understand that you're still there and soothing. The next method is called the fading method where you slowly decrease sleep associations over time, gradually moving the caregiver out of the nighttime routine when it comes to the child actually transitioning to sleep. And then the fourth method is called schedule awakenings or the no cry method where you actually the child, you're not letting them cry at all, but you're actually waking them at certain time intervals at night before their typical awakenings and then soothing them back to sleep and slowly weaning your schedule of awakenings. That method may sound crazy because you're waking up your child, but there is yes. data to support that actually it helps children sleep better. So for my child, because I'm a sleep physician and I actually give advice in the clinic, I don't feel it's fair for me to give parents advice without doing sleep training myself and being comfortable with the various methods of sleep training. And so for my first child, we did the extinction method where we did the pure cry it out method. Because again, I didn't feel like it was fair for me to advise parents that they could use that method in certain situations if I wasn't comfortable doing it myself. And so we did the, the cry out method, but with parental presence. So you can still be there with your child. You don't have to be out of the room. So I sat next to my child's crib and allowed him to cry it out. And I'll tell you, the first night was very, very difficult. But the second night, we saw a, a vast improvement. And the third night, he didn't actually cry at all. And so it worked relatively quickly. For my second child, thankfully, we didn't have to sleep train because he had a drowsy period. So the, the goal is not to have to sleep train any child because they've learned to self-soothe as they've gotten older uh, through early infancy. And the goal there is trying to put the child to bed when they're drowsy, not completely asleep. And if you can do that, the child is learning to self-soothe naturally. And so hopefully it will be a great sleeper and you'll never need to sleep train. Well, I mean, that just sounds like magic. <laughs> if you could have the last one, please. <laughs> I, I will tell you, you know, my, my first child had every sleep, you know, we call these sleep associations, which is anything that a child relies on to fall asleep, such as rocking or being fed or being sung to or being held. My child had every sleep association in the book. He wanted to be fed. He wanted to be rocked. He wanted to be held in, in a certain position. And we'd be up two or three times every night for an hour and a half trying to soothe him in just the right way to get him to fall asleep. He had no drowsy period. He'd go from wide awake crying to asleep in about two seconds. So like we could never put him down when he was drowsy. So he naturally developed all these sleep associations, which you know, I knew all about this, and yet my child still developed them. So having a child that relies on sleep associations, sometimes I really feel it's unavoidable. But that's where sleep training really made a huge difference. It allowed him to be able to sleep in 11 and 12-hour chunks, be able to wake up at night, but yet fall back asleep on his own without crying or fussing, 
and wake up in the morning very happy and content and ready to engage us and, and have a great day. So it really was a game changer. It was a life changer. It was a game changer for him. And it was a game changer for us and allowed us, I think, to be better rested, more attentive parents during the daytime. Oh, God, yes. And it's so interesting to hear that, you know, they are obviously individual little human beings. So as you say, you know, one son had you needed all the associations and the other one just had these drowsy periods. And who knows what we get on our hands? But I think it's important to understand we can't just fit them in a box, hey? We can't just say all babies should have this pattern and that's how it works. But you're actually saying that they're allowed to have their own ways and we need to understand them. Absolutely. Every child is different. And then the same goes for parents. They shouldn't feel discouraged because their friend has a child who magically slept through the night at four months or six months and their child isn't. It doesn't mean they're doing something wrong. It means they have a child that's different and that's okay. Every child is completely unique and every child will do things their own way. And we have to help them. I think we have to help them along the course. If they're having difficulty with sleep continuity and they hit six months of age, sleep training is okay. It's safe. It's effective. And children do well. But I usually recommend that they have somebody, either a sleep doctor or somebody that can help guide them through the ups and downs and help them navigate. Because bumps in the road always come up. Parents are always going to question, am I doing the right thing for my child? That's why it's nice to have a resource or a physician that that can help guide them through that. And is your book, would I be able to recommend your book as that resource? Oh, I'd I'd be happy to recommend (laughs) that. There are lots of resources out there. But it's, you know, I always want folks to find a resource that is scientifically valid and accurate because there are a lot of opinions out there and people will throw around science in a way that makes it feel as if it's scientifically wrong or right to do certain things. But when it comes to the data, the the growing body of, of data for children, we have great, great studies that show that it's safe, it's effective, uh, and it's something that does have short-term benefits. Wonderful. So Jay, I am so happy that you took the time to give us all this wonderful information. I think you have a really real and down-to-earth approach about it, or at least when you talk about it. (laughs) And also that you've been through this yourself. I mean, I know you're obviously well-educated in this and whether you have children or not, you still have all this understanding, but just knowing that you felt the pain of having to sit there next to them. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one thing to know all the, all the book stuff and the science stuff, but something completely different to have a little human that you're in charge of and taking care of. And so I like to think I understand it from both sides. And I've seen the benefits. You know, I've seen it in my clinic for my patients and I've seen it personally in my own life for me and my family. I really am so sure that all the listeners will have so much good information, may hopefully feel a bit more confident in choosing the right way for them, but at least be aware that it's not all bad. It really is okay to find a way that that seems reasonable for you and your family. Absolutely. Thank you so much, UJ. I'll let you go back to your family and I really appreciate your time and your wonderful information. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions or topics that you would like me to speak about, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via my website, annamaria.com.au. And remember to subscribe so that you get each new episode as they become available. I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to write Mumsbyer a review on iTunes. And you can support us even further by making a donation on annamaria.com.au forward slash Mumsbyer. Lastly, I want to say a big thank you to our Danish friend Jesper Huff 
for making our very own Mumspire jingle. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and your loved ones.